0: I pray for, for your word this morning here that you would use it powerfully, that you would allow all of us to walk out of here more amazed at Jesus, more wanting to live for him and love him because of what we see in your truth. I pray that for us, and I pray that for Royal View Baptist Church just down the street from here. God, Pastor Mike is preaching already, and so would you give him strength and energy? Would you give him stamina and the ability to finish strong uh, the preaching? But also, God, would you work in the hearts of the people at Royal View? Would you, would you cause people to be born again through the preaching of the word? Would you cause your people there, your, the Christians, to grow and be changed as a result of Pastor Mike's preaching? God, bless that church. Use that church in a powerful way to make much of Jesus in our community pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So um, I get this um, particularly fun thing where I'm um, as a former teacher, I get students contacting me on a regular basis to want to, to talk. It's kind of it's a, it's a really cool thing. Uh, when I was in California a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, a student that I had 15 years ago contact me through Facebook, and we had lunch together. I had a student, in just a few weeks, actually, I'm doing a wedding of a former student that I had at Gilbert Christian High School. And uh, periodically over the past couple months, I've been with meeting with a, a student from Gilbert Christian, former student. He's graduated now, and he, he brings questions, and then I do my best to try to answer them. And so um, this week, he, he, he asked me this question, and uh, I'm going to bring this question to you this morning. He said, is, is fear of hell a good reason to follow Christ? Have you ever thought of that? Can you follow Christ to gain eternal life, or is searching to gain something from Christ not true faith? So the answer I gave him to that question is the reason that we're taking a break from Galatians this morning. Before we talk about that, though, I wanna, I wanna know something from you. How would you complete this sentence? Salvation is blank. Salvation is what? If you have message notes, you can write that even on your notes if you want. Salvation is what? How would you complete that sentence? What words are coming to mind now? Salvation is what? Amen. So now I want to ask you another question. Followers of Jesus are what? How would you complete that sentence? Followers of Jesus are what? Now, I'm sure as you're figuring out now, you know, that there, there are lots of ways to complete that sentence. But in the New Testament, the completion of that sentence, actually the completion of both sentences is exactly the same thing. Now, there's a phrase in the New Testament. It's used over 250 times. It's been called, quote, the key of the New Testament. It's been called the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's been called the central truth of all theology and all religion. One author said that if if we don't think about this one truth, if this truth hasn't captured our hearts and we're constantly jamming it into our heads, he said, quote, our view of the Christian life would be gravely distorted because no truth is able to depart confidence and strength, comfort and joy in the Lord than this one. So to miss this phrase, to skim over it is to miss the New Testament. So if you've read the Bible a bunch of times and you've never seen this phrase, then what you're gonna discover this morning is that you've missed the New Testament. I was first introduced to this phrase about 20 years ago. I was, um, I was in college and I had a teacher, his name's Ron Wright, I told you about him before. Massive impact on my life. Um, he, is, he, was a t- he, was, he had many Timothys in his life, many people that he mentored, but for me, he was my Paul. And he would say to us on numerous occasions, we're sitting in class, and he would say, men and women, he would say, the key to personal revival, actually, he would say, the key to community revival, the next great awakening depends on this truth. He would say this over and over again. He would would point us to this truth all the time. And so for about 20 years now, I've had this truth like gnawing in the back of my head. Hey, do you know enough about me? Have you studied me enough, or are you thinking about me enough? Remember, revival, personal revival, corporate revival, your, your teacher told you, depends on me. Do you really understand me? Do you think you should study me a little bit more? Over and over again for years. So as I've been preparing for this Reformation conference coming in a couple weeks, we're, we're, remember we're partnering with, with uh, Grace Bible and we are, we're doing a Reformation conference, the 27th and the 28th. So as I've been preparing for that, to preach there, this thought, this idea, this doctrine has been coming back to my mind more and more. And it came back this week when I was answering the question from that former student. And so the word lie, you know, on your notes as we have here, the word lie might be a little bit too strong for what we're going to talk about today, but what hit me as I was answering this question. So I'm answering the question from this student. As, and as I'm answering that question, I'm going, I'm describing myself. I'm, I, I'm, my preaching, my teaching here has actually been incomplete. So I'm like, I need to confess this to the church this morning. And, and then what I need to do is I need to either introduce you to this truth or I need to reintroduce you to this truth. So after all of that, Any idea about what I'm talking about? Any idea what this all-important truth is? This, This phrase, this key to revival, is just two words. In Christ. In Christ. Now, none of us would deny that love or faith or the gospel are central themes to the New Testament, right? We would all say like New Testament, all about those things, very important, unmistakable ideas. But listen to this. In the New Testament, the word love is used 227 times. In the New Testament, the word faith is used 230 times. In the New Testament gospel, that word gospel is used 91 times, peace 86 times, joy 60 times. The word Christian is used three times. But this phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in the Lord, is used over 250 times. In other words, when Christians thought about themselves, they didn't think about themselves as Christians. They didn't call themselves Christians. And so these other descriptors of of followers of Jesus, like believer, that word's not even used in the New Testament, disciple, saint, slave, whatever it is, however it is that we we look to describe ourselves, all of those pale in comparison to the description of Christians in the New Testament, which is in Christ. This this phrase is central to everything the Bible teaches about God and Jesus, their relationship to us, salvation, your identity, who you are, your purpose in life, why you are here, your future, where you are headed, all of that. All of that is connected to to being in Christ. And yet for all of us, myself included, I think we know incredibly little about this idea. You know, now that I've said this, I want you to see this. So open your Bibles to John 15, John 15. In fact, after today, my hope is that you will not be able to read your New Testament without these two words jumping off the page constantly, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So I want you to notice this in John 15. If you got a Bible from one of the ushers, that's page 999. John 15. Jesus uses a metaphor here to describe what it means to be in him. And he, he, he uses this metaphor um, to say, this is what the Christian life is like. This is what the Christian life looks like. And what I want you to see, it's, it's not a, a hamster on a hamster wheel, He doesn't use the picture of a a slave doing their their chores for their master. He uses the picture of a vine and branches. Look at John 15, starting in verse one. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father, the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So he uses this picture to describe the life-giving energy and, and life that he imparts to his people, just like the The branches of a vine get their strength from the vine. Turn to John 17. Just two books, two pages really to the right. John 17 and drop down to verse 20. I want you to see this again. John 20, I'm sorry, John 17, verse 20. John 17, 20 says, I do not ask for these only. So Jesus is praying and he's saying, I'm not not just talking about the 12 or the 11. Judas has already left. I'm not just praying for them but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So people like us, who believe the apostles, who believe their testimony. He says, for them, he says, I pray that they may all be one, that as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I'm gonna come back to that. This is beginning to sink in a little bit. Here's this in Christ. Now now I want you to turn to uh, Colossians, book of Colossians. It's about eight books to the right, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, book of Colossians, it's page uh, 1087 in the Bibles that the ushers gave out, page 1087. Colossians chapter 1, drop down to verse 24. Paul is describing his ministry. Colossians 1, 24. He's saying it hasn't all been puppy dogs and ice cream. It hasn't been rainbows and butterflies. It's actually been difficult. Look at verse 24, Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Of which, this church, I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. Okay, so what is this word? What's this message that, that I'm trying to make known to the world? It's the mystery It's hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. It was hidden before, now it's being revealed. He's like piling on. Okay, what is it you're talking about? To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Are you feeling like the anticipation building? What is this mystery? What is this truth? Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you. So in Christ is a crucially significant idea. It's crucially significant at the end of Galatians 2. So we're going to dig into it more in the coming weeks. But um, it, it, it's extremely important. And one more passage I want you to turn to. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. It's two books to the left. Philippians, then Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse three. I'm gonna read from verse three to verse 14 so you can follow along in your Bibles. This, um, verses three to 14 in Greek is one sentence. And so this was like final exam for seminary students. Do you really know your Greek? You know, translate this and make it make sense. And so Ephesians 1, 3, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read this. If you have a pen or a pencil or a highlighter, I want you to underline, highlight the words in Christ. Okay? I want you to see this as you read your Bible. So now we're practicing. I want this to jump out for you. We're going to start here and see how it goes. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. I'm going to pause like that so that you can underline. In Christ, in, in, in the heavenly place, it, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which which he lavished, which, which he blessed us in the beloved, the beloved one, Jesus. In him. was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Did you, how many times did you underline things Isn't that? Like half a dozen, a dozen? Like there's, there's a lot. Gonna, I'm going to show you what to do with that as we go. But what I want you to see, go back to verse three, Ephesians 1, 3. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. I'm gonna spend the rest of our time together just trying to dig into that idea. What in the world does that mean? And how in the world does that become the central theme of all theology and the, and the core of Christianity? Like how is, what is that all about? Well, in theological language, the, terms, the, the, the term in Christ has a name. In theology, it's called union with Christ. This concept completely missed in the Protestant before the Protestant Reformation. So before the Reformation, the idea was that you could grow in your union with Christ. And so by doing a bunch of rituals, by your obedience, by your charity, by your prayers, um, you could get closer and closer to union with Christ. You could grow in your union with Christ. You could be more and more uh, uh, closer to him. and the, the goal being perfect union, perfect connection, perfect union with Jesus. Well, the men in the Protestant Reformation unleashed an incredible idea into the world when they made a distinction between union and communion. And they said, our communion with Christ does change. Our obedience, our prayer, our living for him, our sin, brings us closer and farther to Jesus in communion, in fellowship, in closeness, in intimacy. But they said, our our union with Jesus never changes. It is solid, it is secure, it is unwavering, it is unchanging. It's just like marriage. In marriage, the, the communion, the fellowship, the intimacy between husband and wife can grow. It can, it can be strong and it can fade, you know, bad year, good year, right? Bad day, good day. That there can be, that, that communion can shift. But the one flesh union between husband and wife never changes. So unattached to Christ, there, there isn't even a flicker of spiritual life. There's, there's, nothing, it, there, there, there's nothing there. But in Christ, Ephesians 1.13, how many blessings are there? Every spiritual blessing. I want you to think about that for a minute. Where is eternal life? Is it in you or is it in Christ? Where is redemption? Where is freedom, like we talked about last week? Is it in you, or is it in Christ? Where is righteousness? Where is goodness? Where is sinlessness? Is it in you, or is it in Christ? Where is reconciliation, forgiveness, adoption, salvation? Where are all of those blessings? In you, dependent on you, or in Christ? I'll take this container of water here for a minute. This picture's Christ, all right? Everything that he is, everything that he did to save you, his death, his resurrection, his perfect life, that is what this is a picture of. This is a picture of Christ. This is a picture of you and me, the Hulk, right? Green with envy, anger, you know, anxiety, fear, sinlessness, rebellion, that's us. We are separated from Christ. We are enemies of God. We're at war with him, dead in our sins, enslaved to our sin, at war with God, all of those things. Is Jesus any of those things? No, right? In Jesus is life eternal. In Jesus is redemption and freedom. Okay, so let's... uh, So here he is. Here's here's redemption and freedom in Jesus. Come on. Righteousness, right? Being right with God. Acceptance from him. That's in Jesus. Love and joy and peace and forgiveness and adoption, all of those things are in Jesus. Every spiritual blessing, right? Right there. When a person believes, here's us. When a person believes, the Holy Spirit places them into Christ. Can you even see Him anymore? Surrounded, engulfed, consumed by Christ. If Jesus has eternal life and you're in Jesus, guess what you have? If Jesus is perfect and sinless and righteous, if he's right with God, what are you? If Jesus is a friend of God, what are you? If Jesus is the son of God, if he's in the family of God, what does that make you? Do you see every spiritual blessing, every blessing that belongs to Jesus belongs to those who are in Jesus. Everything he did to save us belongs to those who are in him. So now instead of asking how holy, how righteous do I have to be before God? How much prayer do I have to do? How much giving do I have to do? How uh, how many good works do I have to do? That's the wrong question. The question is, how holy is Christ? How good is Christ? And then you know what you do? You smile. Because everything Jesus is, is yours in him. In the midst of your good days and your bad days, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and everything in him is yours. So you should read the New Testament. Every time you see those words in Christ, in him, you should notice what it is that is in him. What are those things? And then you should say, that's mine too. Let's do that for a second. Here's 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, okay? Here's this passage. I I did all capital letters in Christ so that I wouldn't miss them as I read them. But I want you to notice not just the in Christ, but I want you to notice what is in Christ, what is being described here. So it says, therefore, to anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made him who kn- to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, What are the things that are in Christ? Here, I've underlined them for you. New creation, born again, regeneration, new new spiritual life in Christ. Reconciliation, no longer being at war with God, but being a friend of God in Christ. Not counting your trespasses against us. Forgiveness in Christ your purpose in life, entrusting us with the message of reconciliation, that Jesus' message, his ministry, and his mission is your message and ministry and mission because you are in Christ. And then finally, righteousness is in Christ. Everything you need to be right with God, sinless perfection in Christ. Do you see that? This is is my only point of application this morning. Read your New Testament if you're not doing that already. And when you do, underline in Christ, in him, in the Lord, whatever. Underline that and then draw an arrow to the thing that is in Christ. You know, here like new creation and so forth. And then say, that's mine and smile. That is the gospel. Except for his deity... Jesus shares everything he has with those who are in him when he unites us to himself. What he has because he's God, sinless perfection, perfect happiness, unending acceptance with God. What he has because he's God, we have by grace like husband and wife they say I when they say I do they exchange all that they have and all that they are as individuals they exchange that to be united one flesh one life in the same way Jesus unites himself to us so that everything he is we are every, and we get all the blessings everything we are he gets he gets the punishment we get the blessings every how many blessings every spiritual blessing But there's more than that. Because if you think about the concept of the body of Christ, this this idea, we're the body of Christ. Jesus cements himself to us so much that we become his body. Think about that. We are, we, are, we are cemented to him so closely. I mean, husband and wife are cemented to each other, but it's, it's, it's spiritual. It's, it's, it, but when it comes to us in Christ, there is this, there is this union that, come, that, that happens that is even more intimate and more close than the bond between husband and wife. So Christian, why are you accepted with God? Why are you accepted by God? Answer, because you are in Christ. Jesus shares his acceptance with God with you. So question, how accepted are you? Answer, as accepted as Jesus is. Wait a minute, I'm a sinner, I'm sinful. Bottom line about you, you're in Christ. Why is the Christian forgiven and declared right with God? Because he is in Christ. Jesus shares his sinlessness with us. So how right with God are you? As right as Jesus is. Christian, why are you a child of God? Answer, because Jesus is the son of God and he shares his sonship with you. So how much of a child of God are you? Are you a redheaded stepchild? Oh yeah, we've got that one over there. Pretend he's not there. You know, like, is that the way God treats us because of our sin? How much are you accepted by the Father? As much as Jesus is. You see, when it comes to this concept of being in Christ, you really have to think of every single thing, every blessing about being a Christian attached to him. Jesus shares his relationship with us so much, in fact, we read it in John 17, 23, that the father loves us, it says there, just as he loves Christ. Think about that. Because we're united to him. What he has because he's the eternal Son of God, we have because we are in him, and it is impossible for us to unhave those things. You are just as assured of love and peace and joy and satisfaction and happiness and heaven as Jesus is because union with Christ is where the Christian stays forever. Your good deeds, your obedience can't make you more in Christ. Your sins can't make you less in Christ. Your good days don't keep you in. Your bad days don't kick you out. This union is unbreakable. It is as strong as God himself, which is why Paul says in Romans 10, 39, that nothing, not one thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right? Like, have you ever heard about this concept before? Is this something that, how many of you have ever heard a message on union with Christ? Don't, don't raise your hands. And yet this message, these, this concept, this idea is just as central to the New Testament as faith and love. And if not, if not even more central, and let me ask you a different way. Have you ever felt like something is just missing in your Christian life? Like you're just, you're, you're getting, you're like hitting a wall and you're like, what? Ah, there's just something not there. Guaranteed, this is it, right here, union with Christ. So, why are we talking about this today? Um, remember Andreas's question, the student. He says, "Is is fear of hell a good reason to follow Christ? Can you follow Christ to gain eternal life, or is searching to gain something from Christ not true faith?" So my answer to him went something like this. First of all, um, I don't think you need to be born again um, to not want to go to hell, right? If if you are convinced that hell is a real place, you know, maybe because Jesus talked about it so much, if you are convinced of that, then all you have to do probably is be breathing and not want to go to hell, right? But I said, you have to be born again to love God. There's nothing in us that loves God. He's got, the, the, there's got that new life has to be there because, by nature, it, the Bible says we are enemies of God. We are children of wrath. We're, we are dead in our sins. We're, we're pushing against God, running away from Him. Uh, we, in order to, to love Him and follow Him and trust Him, we've got to be born again. I said, but second of all, I said, your, your question comes from being a Christian in 21st century America, because here, and really it's been for the past couple hundred years, we have separated salvation from Jesus. Let me show you how. We, and myself included, we offer forgiveness, eternal life, peace with God. We entice people with the blessings, which makes Jesus then the middleman. He's the, he's the broker of those blessings. He, he's the means, right? I, I want these blessings, and, and Jesus is the means to get me to those blessings. I, I take the Jesus shuttle, and he takes me from where I am to those blessings. So it goes like this. God will forgive you. God loves you. He'll save you. He'll give you love, joy, peace, and lasting happiness. He'll help you in your life to meet your purpose, to, to, to live, for, you know, live for a higher meaning. He'll do all of those things for you. Just come to Jesus. No, in, in, in that presentation, who is the center of that presentation? The sinner, the person. It's like that reluctant child at Christmas. Yeah, give your, your crotchety old Aunt Lucy a kiss and she'll give you your Christmas present, right? And so what does the kid do? Hold his nose, kisses, kisses Aunt Lucy so that he can get his Christmas present. So come to Jesus and get the blessings you want we've made this grave mistake of separating the gifts from the giver. Now, after looking at in Christ, do you see how wrong that is? Do you see why in New Testament theology that makes no sense? Because all the gifts, every spiritual blessings, do not merely come to us through Christ, they are in Christ. When the gifts are separated from the giver in our preaching, in my preaching, and the gifts become central and not the giver. And also, you with Christ, this precious, central, important idea becomes non existent. So, as we saw, his blessings don't exist outside of him. They're, they're yours and they're everybody's who are in him. They can't be separated from him. And as, as if we could have the gifts independently of the giver. In other words, grace, salvation, righteousness are not commodities to be bartered, they aren't things that he pa- they're not a thing that he passed. Like, here's some grace that this thing that he passes to us that salvation is not a uh, a secret password or a secret handshake it's not a punch ticket it's not a get into heaven free card when the gifts are separated from the giver the issue for me will then be well how do i offer the gifts to people how do I, how do i explain the gifts how do i explain it so that people are enticed to give their lives to that and then then the issue for you becomes well how do i get in on that how do i get those gifts But when Jesus and his gifts are inseparable, the main question for me then is how do I preach Christ so that people will leave everything to follow him? How do I preach him in such a way that they see how great and how good that he is? And then when I do that, your issue moves from how do I get those blessings to how do I have him? How do I get him? One author put it this way. We've not been united to Christ so that we can get some other reward, heaven, righteousness, salvation, or whatever. We do not seek in Christ something else than Christ himself. The great reward of union with Christ is Christ. Knowing and enjoying him is the eternal life for which we've all been saved. So going back to the beginning, remember I had you complete those sentences. Salvation is what? What? Salvation is in Christ, exactly. Followers of Jesus are what? They are in Christ. Grace, mercy, love, joy, peace is in Christ. The gospel message is Christ. It's not the blessings. The message is Christ. What we we receive in the gospel is not the gifts, but we receive Christ. So the focus of the preaching and the teaching and the counseling and the ministry, all of that must be to just show you Christ. Christ. To put him on display where every spiritual blessing resides. And when that happens, when a person gives themselves to Christ, the byproduct is every spiritual blessing is theirs now, forever, instantaneously, now and forever. Ton more could be said on the back of your notes. I put a bunch of books there about this subject. If you want to know more about this, if this is piquing your interest. I put some books back there. Check those out. This is an incredibly significant passage uh, uh, subject. At the end of Galatians, like I said, we're gonna, at Galatians 2, we're gonna talk more about this. This is a significant thing. But I wanna end in Philippians chapter one. So if you're still in Ephesians, turn to Philippians chapter one. And here I wanna end. Philippians one. Paul has, um, Paul is in jail as he's writing this letter to the Philippians. And he is, he's torn. He's not sure what he wants. Do I, wanna, do I wanna stay alive and keep ministering to people or do I wanna die and go to heaven? Philippians chapter one. If you got a Bible from one of the ushers, page 1083, 1083. And so here he is writing this letter and he's not sure, do I wanna die and be with Christ or do I wanna stay? And now notice what he says, he's torn between life and death. Look at verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now and always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, why is that, Paul? Well, because if I live if live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. It's like six of one, half a dozen of the other, stay alive or or, or die. I'm hard pressed. I'm not sure which one because between the two, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. Look at verse 23 again. Death is compared to what? Compared to a departure. And... Just like an airplane, you're departing. He he's views death as a departure. So what is the destination that Paul is looking at? I'm, I want to depart and be in heaven. I want to depart and walk on golden streets. I want to depart and see the pearly gates. I want to depart and see St. Peter. I want to depart and what? I want to be with Christ. He, Christ was the destination. Christ was the goal. Jesus was the overall aim. Everything else was just getting him there. All of the rest was just spillover benefits. The ultimate was Jesus. In other words, salvation is having Christ. Heaven is Christ. That's why Paul said, heaven is better. Better than what? better than every single thing that Paul would leave behind in death. Family, friends, food, Disneyland, baseball, Star Wars, Hawaii, everything. Nothing compared to being with Christ. Paul longed for heaven because that's where Jesus was. Jesus had become that precious to him because he did not separate the gift from the giver's the gift from the giver. In fact, my hope is what I saw in this passage is that the gift was the giver. The gift is the giver. Heaven is better because heaven means having more of Jesus than we can ever possibly have here. Because on that day, being in him will become being with him. And in his presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But those are not the goal. The goal is Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for that convicting moment that I had this week with that former student, where I realized that I too hold out the gifts and very often separate them from you, the giver. Help us, please, use this message to, um, to reorient our hearts and get us going in a better direction when it comes to thinking about you and your truth. We've only scratched the surface. And really, no matter how much we study this, think about this, pray about this, talk to others about this. We will only scratch the surface on everything this truly means. But Jesus, you you showed us that that you were serious about this when you united yourself with humanity. And then you unite humanity to deity by faith. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you so much. It's in your name I pray. Amen.